Thank you so much again for checking out the Shitty Little Podcast. And I'll definitely go back and have a listen to last week's episode, which was part one of this week's part two of my deep dig on Motley Crue's first five great records. And once again, I'm just going to try and focus as much on the music as I can. Because I feel a lot's been written about their excesses, but the great music is sometimes overlooked. Quickly, I'd like to thank the following humans for rating the podcast or sending me nice vibes recently. Paul Jam in WA, Mark Bodner, Metal Hair on Instagram for sending me some vinyl porn, Scott Hughes, Gear Prites in Oslo, Norway, Roscoe Hetherington, and the Queen and Princess of Chess Hunt, Emily and Rachel Croucher, and those other peanuts up there, and Glenn Turtle Howard and Dave Brick. So where we finished up in part one was Vince Neil had just had his car accident. In late 1984, band members returned to Los Angeles after a triumphant tour. Before starting work on a new album, they decided to take a well-deserved break. All the band members had just gotten our first really taste of, of, of money. On December 8th, Nikki was in Martinique while the other band members gathered at Vince's house. We're having like a cool barbecue, you know, party. The drummer of the band Hanoi Rocks, Nicholas Dingley, AKA Razzle, was hanging out with the band. And Vince just bought a Pantera uh, car fast as hell. The store was just right down the street and let's go get some beer. And it was just on the way back, you know, I lost control of the car and, and um, spun out of control. Razzle, in the passenger seat, was struck by an oncoming car. Way, way down the street was sirens and went out on the balcony, looked, you just see red lights, fire trucks, ambulances were like, that can't be. So I remember just hauling down the street and I'll never, ever forget this in my life. I can see Vince's car and it's just smashed in the center of the road. I walk up and I see Vince sitting on the curb like this, just crying, freaking out and shaking. And I see Razzle's shoes. I remember seeing his shoes sitting in the middle of the street and I was just like, this is not happening. He actually died in my arms, you know. Neil was involved in a head-on traffic accident in Redondo Beach last night. The passenger in his car was killed. Well, I was at the MTV Awards in, in New York when I got the call. Neil was charged with drunk driving and released on $2,500 bail. It was going to be ugly, you know, and, and, you know, we all thought that Motley was over as Motley Crue at that point. Motley Crue, not even four years old at the time, seemed about to be destroyed by their own excess. Unbelievable, man. The other two people, they had brain damage. It seemed likely that Motley would lose its front man, which would mean the end of the original band. People do have to be accountable for what they do. I had to pay out, you know, two and a half million dollars to the victims. You know, I went to jail. He could continue to make music with Motley Crue, though he would have to clean up his act, starting with court-mandated sobriety throughout his five-year probation. And he has griped that I'm trying to stay clean, and they thought it was funny leaving over and say, oh, Vince, can you hand me that line of Coke? Can you make me a drink and pass this beer here? This is not a highly sensitive band. Had no support, you know, none, zero. Vince's accident and his fight to stay sober caused immense amounts of friction within the group. Having the band explode and be that big and then have something like this happen. The best way I can sum it up is he hurt a lot of people. It's like, you know, guys, it's an accident. And uh, 
They didn't see it that way. Vince wasn't any more out of control than anybody else was. It's just that he was now the guy that was wrecking the band. That just really pushed me out of the band. You know, I was just kind of the singer. I was just kind of there. You can't talk about the accident mm -hmm. with Razzle from Hanoi Rocks. Right. But uh, tell me, you know, like your true feelings on it and tell me something about this new album. Yeah, well, um, we wanted to put a message on for all the kids um, because there is a danger in drinking and driving and we don't want to lose any of our fans. Even though we're the bad boys of rock, doesn't mean that we don't care about people. And a lot of bands, you know, I mean, all bands care about their fans. And, um, you know, we do like to have a good time, just like everybody else. But what we're just trying to say is that when you do drink, or you do do drugs, or you do do anything like that, you know, take a limo, take a cab, or sleep there, or have a friend drive you, you know, because a lot of people think that um, it, it won't, you know, won't happen to them, but you know, it, it can happen to anybody. After Vince's, Vince's misfortune, we obviously came together and helped the cat out, you know, and became like closer as, as friends as well as band members. I'd been in a bad car accident, and so had Tommy previous to that, and uh, we were both very drunk when it happened. And then it happened to Vince, who wasn't nearly, you know, this, I mean, it influences us, and we all said, you know, this could have happened to me or could have to Tommy or Nick or any of our friends, and it's something that we said, you know, it's time to, like, straighten up about that. The crew did return to the studio, however, and produced the hugely successful Theater of Pain. There's a lot of, like, there's a lot of different types of music on the Theater of Pain album. I mean, there's, like, blues, there's the slow songs, and there's kind of stuff. We're just kind of getting back into the more guitar-oriented stuff. Like the first album, Raw. Yeah, much raw. More street. So as the man said, Motley Crue hit the studio again in January 1985 to start work on their third album, which was meant to be called Entertainment or Death. But the band eventually settled on the name Theatre of Pain. Entertainment or Death was also the name of my first piece of Motley Crue anything when a friend gave me a live bootleg tape from Bali, which had live versions of songs from the first four albums up until Girls, 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 and I loved it. I am here, uh, they're in the middle of a sellout tour of the United Kingdom, Dear Old Blighty, two members of Motley Crue. Hey, how Nicky you doing? and Tommy on drums. Now, I've got some sensible questions to ask you here. Oh, no. Yes. <laughs> Great, so, uh, now, it says on uh, the biog thingy that uh, I was given that um, you got the idea for the album Theatre of Pain from uh, a book you'd read about the Commedia dell'arte in the... Uh, are you actually well into the 16th century? I just found the book somewhere. <laughs> What's there any book that you pick up? You'll actually was, do an album about it. It was just a book it. called The Italian Comedy, and I was just I was just flipping through it and um, got the whole idea for, you know, the comedy and tragedy masks, the idea for the album cover. And, you know, it's not a conceptual album. It's just the idea, you know, behind the, the stage show mostly, you know? Mm -hmm. Wanted to do something different and real theatrical, which is what we're really all about. Yeah. There's not much of uh, not much of your Commedia dell'arte in your no, usual not a whole lot. show. <laughs> Theatre of Pain, in my opinion, is probably the weakest of their 80s records, but I still do love it. And it also was the start of Mick Mars playing a lot more slide guitar on albums. So I nerded out pretty hard last week on the whole Too Fast for Love album, but I forgot to mention a piece of your action. And I just wanted to bring it up, as the verse in Piece of Your Action has a great slide guitar part. I want you, I need you, I 
Piece of Your Action also has a great melodic slide guitar solo. Mick didn't play any more slide on the Too Fast for Love record and none at all on Shout at the Devil, but on the next three albums, Mick played two or three slide solos on each record. And it's one of the things that made him stand out above most of the other 80s guys in my ears. I'm probably going to get shot here, but I never really got into guys like Van Halen's playing. Didn't seem to talk to me like Mick's guitar playing did. Mick Mars has always had a great mix of singable melodies and the standard issue Whittly Diddly, but his melodic playing was so memorable to me and his rhythm guitar playing is as good as anyone's. So from Theatre of Pain, here's the slide solo from Save Our Souls. City Boy Blues has a cracker as well. And the third song on Theatre of Pain to use a slide guitar solo... It's not one of my favourites just because it's a cover, but it is the song that took the band to the next level. Woo! Yeah, 
harmonica solo was played by Nicky Raphael and a great slide guitar solo from Mick Mars. The original version of Smoking in the Boys Room was released in 1973 by a band called Brownsville Station, and here's a tiny little bit of it in case you've never heard it. Smoking in the Boys Room was the first single released off Theatre of Pain on the 24th of June 1985 and it went to number 16 in the US, number 71 in the UK, number 19 in Canada, number 61 in Australia and no action at all in Norway. In his autobiography, Tattoos and Tequila, Vince called Theatre of Pain that piece of shit. And in 2014, Nikki said this about the record. Pile of rubbish, the whole fucking record, with a few moments of brilliance, maybe. And I don't agree with either of those statements, but I do agree with Nikki's moments of brilliance. And one of those moments is definitely the second single off Theatre of Pain. Home Sweet Home. That's my favourite one. You know I'm a dreamer, but my heart's a gold. If you listened to part one last week, the solo in Home Sweet Home is part three of my trilogy of mixed great recurring theme solos, and they all happen to be in non-love-related power ballads, which was a rarity in the 80s, and they all just happen to be my favourite songs off the first three albums. On with the show from Too Fast for Love, Danger from Shout at the Devil, and Home Sweet Home.
And perhaps the band's negativity towards theatre of pain was a result of Nicky's escalating heroin use at the time. It really started in theatre of pain where it started to become an addiction. So there's that period, you know, 85 leading into 86 where it wasn't fun anymore. And that kind of sucks to be in a rock band and not be having any fun. It's a one-way street. You can't back down it. You can't turn around. You're heading to the invisible line. When you hit the invisible line, there's no coming back. And few realized just how close to that invisible line Nikki was getting. It came out when I had them rehearsing at a studio up in Massachusetts. The rehearsals were going a little, you know, like not right. And Mick Mars became incensed and said, this isn't working because Nikki got some heroin. And I was like, oh my God. You know, like, uh, you know, like uh, I was aghast. Remarkably, Nikki could still write great songs and perform. So most people looked the other way. Nobody was trying to stop this. It was like a bullet train that everybody was jumping on, and how much faster can we make it go? Few realized just how sick Nicky had become. He was spending $5,000 a day on drugs. Their tolerance for drugs was so high that at one point, they were actually injecting hard liquor, not drinking it. They were shooting it in their arm. Success, you know, gave us the ability to spend more money on recording time and on, on stage, on sets. It was, it was the same thing with drugs. You know, so when we were doing Too Fast for Love, you know, we could afford a little bit of stuff. And Shout at the Devil, we could afford a lot of stuff. And by Theater of Pain, we had roomfuls of stuff. And we were indulging in it, and it was starting to not work. You know, our managers basically said, uh, if we got to send you to Europe with what you guys are doing, you know, someone's going to come back in a body bag. And literally, right after that, when we would have been in Europe touring, is when, you know, Nikki OD'd. We obviously had a horrible experience. You know, Vince had a horrible experience. Razzle's family had a horrible experience. Others were just, it was just a horrible thing to happen. We kind of started believing our own hype, you know, and... We didn't have a good work ethic. You know, with Razzle's death and what happened with the band around that, there was a lot of sorrow and a lot of confusion. We just weren't sure what we were doing anymore. You know, there's no way around it. You know, it was, it was a horrible thing. I mean, none of us will ever forget it. Vince will never forgive himself. And, and um, it's, it's hard to explain. You just can't put it in words, something like that happens. I think the focus on that album was, was scattered. You know, I mean, thank God for Home Sweet Home and, and uh, uh, smoking in the boys' room. Well, there wouldn't have been any songs on that album. Um, I mean, I, if you asked me any other song on that album, I wouldn't be able to tell you. Anyway, back to Home Sweet Home. I actually found a demo recording, and Mick Mars' solo is pretty much the same with a couple of different notes at the end. Let's check it out here.
Home Sweet Home made it to number 51 in the UK and number 39 in the US. And I've seen Motley Crue eight times, three times on their 2005 tour with Motorhead, twice in Melbourne and once in Adelaide. I saw them on the Dr. Feelgood tour as well, and again in 2011, and twice on the Farewell tour, once in Melbourne and also in Nashville in 2014. At the same venue, we saw Paul McCartney the next night. And the absolute highlight of all the gigs was Mick Mars' guitar solo in Home Sweet Home, which was a pure time machine, back to when I was a wee-in. But of course... There's a man there you know He's the host of the show And you'll find that he fucking hates choirs This one is next level shit because they sing the solo, they sing the drums. Oh, check it out. It's so poop. Thank God America still has the death penalty in some states. song really was for us was our dream on or our stairway to heaven and all the bands that we loved always had that one song on their record and you know we felt that you know that was something it fit fit for us you know we did on the on the first album you know we had on with the show and we had merry go round on the second album we had danger theater pain and and home sweet home that i I believe was one of the first really hard rock and roll power ballads. It was kind of be, it was kind of neat to when you look back now and go, you know, we kind of started that whole thing. And I had this this idea on guitar when I was about 17 years old, and it was just in the deep position, one note moved along, and I would always play it. It's just one of those things I knew there was something to it, but I never flushed. I could never find a way to flush out the idea. And Tommy picked up the piano one day and kind of started mimicking, adding his own flavor to it. And then Vince, we were leaving rehearsal. I'll never forget this. They were actually, we were kind of heading out the door and we were going up to the whiskey to go, you know, have some drinks and then over to the rainbow and do our usual shenanigans. And um, we just kind of fell in this magic moment where the song was written in about 15 minutes. At the time and place we were all in, that song we had been on the road for forever. And this song really, you know, meant a lot of things to us. And one of them was like, we really wanted, we needed to go home, like people had been away for so long. We had a lot of songs that were floating around. It, Too Fast for Love that ended up on Shout at the Devil and stuff from Shout at the Devils was recorded. And we even had some of the songs that made it onto um, theater pain like Home Sweet Home. I always wonder if Home Sweet Home would have ended up on Shout at the Devil, what kind of a different reaction that would have had or what that would have been different for our career. You know I'm a dreamer. The whole thing's timing. You know, then, you know, uh, MTV was now, everybody was watching MTV. And when we did the video for that, and it just took off. I remember you know, being a little kid watching MTV and, you know, and just never ever dreaming that one day, you know, that you're 
your band is up there and you have the number one video in, in the world that's playing on loop almost you're like jesus this is insane well they had the, it, was, it was almost like a battle of the bands thing and they had like video against video and we never lost we did i believe um on mtv 14 weeks in a row home sweet home being number one i go again again we're number one again cool Well, finally they had to take us off because we couldn't lose to anybody else's videos. So the crew rule was that nobody could be on uh, like more than four weeks or three three weeks or something like that. So a couple of other highlights from Theatre of Pain for me. And the first one's a song we heard in the Booze episode, and it's Raise Your Hands to Rock. song I've always loved off Theatre of Pain. Another trilogy song, this time a Tommy Lee double bass one. Sort of builds from Livewire and Too Fast for Love. The red Hot on Shout at the Devil. Just while we're on Red Hot, I found a demo version, which has quite a different verse melody. It's quite a bit faster. And I think Vince would be thankful that they dropped the album version down a semitone from E flat to D. that demo version.
And the last song of Tommy Lee's double bass trilogy is Use It or Lose It from Theatre of Pain. some demos, I found a demo for Use It or Lose It too, which also is a semitone higher than the released version. So in the arse end of 1986, the band headed into the studio to record their fourth album and the first album of theirs that I owned, which is Girls, Girls, Girls. Girls, Girls, Girls is another great guitar album with some great playing from Mick, including, like I mentioned before, more of his slide playing. Girls Girls was released on May 15, 1987, went to number two in America, number four in Canada, number 14 in the UK, and yep, number eight in Norway. Otte. And the album had three singles, Girls Girls Girls, which went to number two in the US, number 26 in the UK, number 43 in Australia.
definitely inspired by girls. These days, you'll never see me in a strip club. But in those days, we went every night, before shows, after shows. It was like, you know what? This whole thing needs a theme song. Now it's an anthem. Pretty awesome. Like every, every time you walk into a place, the, there is it's playing. We, you know, we got girls, girls, girls from you know from strip clubs because we hit most of the strip clubs around the country. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I went ahead and put the tattoo on my arm. So now, because I really like the name, so I figured if I put the tattoo on, there's no way they could change the title. <laughs> Wild Side, which didn't chart, but it's one of my favourite songs from the record. And the video for Wild Side debuted Tommy's 360 drum kit. And here's Nikki and Tommy talking about the song. Wild Side, um, we started using some computers yeah. around that time. It was kind of a song that, you know, so Nikki and I started working on, and it just turned into this big, almost machine. And it was like, whoa, this is heavy. As far as the video goes, I think the fact that Wayne left all the camera people in it just showed how crazy it was to make it. Bombs are going off, drums are spinning around upside down, Nikki's rolling down the stage. I mean, it was just, it was insane. It was real. Most videos, you don't see all the stuff going on. Yeah. And that's, that's what was the intention, is just to let people see what's really going on. Wayne just didn't miss anything. It's like, okay, strap a camera to it. Strap a camera to him. Stra- you know, just like whatever, whoever's moving so needs to have a camera on That's him. Right. Dudes, I dreamt, I dreamt of playing drums upside down, like, and they're like, whoa, that's crazy. And, and it just goes to show how we hate the word no. We, yeah. we must have went to three or four different huge set, set companies to build it, and they're like, can't be done. We're like, can't? No? What are those words? That's yeah. insane. It's not uncommon for us to say things like, wouldn't it be great if the drums like flew over the audience? <laughs> and everybody would like... The look us like we're on crack. We're on crack. And we finally found some guy who's a hydraulic specialist uh, on a Navy submarine and had all the knowledge of how to put this together. As the tour went, on, you know, started incorporating, uh, getting the crowd involved, you know, asking them if they wanted to see the drums go right, and boom, the drums go right, and we're playing like this, and left, and we've got, you know, asking the crowd, you want to see, you know, see, see us spin this fucker around, they're like, and they're like, I will never forget, oh, and that thing also went right to the front of the stage, so yeah. I, I'll never forget seeing kids' eyes just like this, like, are you fucking kidding me? This is insane. Because I remember the next tour, you going, well, I went to the audience, but now I want to go in the audience. Yeah. And, and everyone's like, can't be done. Can't be done. And we're like, okay, here we go again. Right, here we go again, the battle. <laughs> Our thing was, how can the guy in the, the shittiest seat, we call it the Stevie Wonder section because you can't see shit from back there. Binoculars, oh, look, guys, look rad. You know, they're this big on stage. In the very back of the arena, have a front row ticket. How do we make that happen? And yeah. when the, the drums are sitting out there and these guys are in the very, very back and they're just like, yeah. It's amazing when sick. the drum solo is going on and you look out and you see the whole front of the arena turn around backwards. Yeah. Because he's now out there. Yeah. Now the guy in the front row has the Stevie Wonder seat. 
Yeah, the guy in the front row's got the bad tickets. <laughs> and it was like, okay, now how do we get down? And it was like, let's, we would uh, jump and rappel down this rope right into the crowd, just like, I looked at Vince and I was like, oh, that's not good. And we yeah, go out and went out there and Tommy had come down the rope and missed yeah. and gone all the way down. Hit the floor. Hit the floor. He was out cold. Unconscious. Boom. Talk, on about, the a, talk about a weird feeling. There's all this energy, everything's positive, and all of a sudden it's just dead. Yeah. And, and you know, we didn't know if he was was dead or not. And, and he's such a hardhead. He gets back up on the stage and goes, okay, let's go. And everyone's like, no, you're going to the hospital, bro. You landed on your head from 70 feet. <laughs> the show must go on. So of the five albums I'm discussing in the Motley Crue episode, apart from the song, Dr. Feelgood, the album Girls, Girls, Girls was sort of the last of Motley Crue's really deep, dark lyrics. And Wild Side was a perfect example of that. My lyrical, uh, you know, point behind that record was to uncover that life and, and, and put a spotlight on it because I thought it was, and I still think it's very poetic. I think it was some of my best lyric writing at the, at the time. It was really, really, really good on Wild Side, really good on some of those songs. Just it's, It just really, you can read it and you can see a picture. And that picture was what we were living. And it was a very honest record. on about my love for Nikki Six and Mick Mars, but obviously Tommy Lee is a great drummer, but I felt like he always got his due. And I've got to say that I do love Vince Neil's voice on the first five Motley Crue records. Always great fire, a huge range, heaps of emotion, and a great vessel for Nikki Six's dark lyrics. And here's Nikki talking about the boys in the band. I like supporting Mick. If Mick needs a fill, I put a fill, like on Don't Go Away Mad, 
And Tom, you know, I play, play to Tommy, write to Tommy. If there's a hole in there, I'll take a moment and do something a little melodic. But what's what I like about Molly Crew is Tommy is a, a lot all, more all over the place than, than a lot of rock drummers. He's got, Tommy has feel in places you shouldn't have feel. Like, I'll just be listening to the ride, and I'm like, man, I could just play a whole song to just what he's doing on the ride and the kick. And then Mick's got this amazing, impeccable sense of rhythm and melody. And, and I get to kind of live in that in that world, you know? And uh, I said something. Sometimes the media really, like, lets me down. Uh, I did this interview with uh, Yahoo Entertainment a while ago. It was a really great interview. Great interviewer, had a great time. Some of the bottom feeder media press outlets will look for shit. It says, Nikki Six compares Vince's voice to Robert Plant. And then just, you know, it has to bring up that, you know, Vince had a bad show when he first came out of pandemic. And, you know, a lot of stuff that people like, you know, are talking about. And, and like, I'm like, you didn't even hear a word I said. That's the, that's the thing. Vince's voice as unique Robert Plant's voice was, although more bluesy, as it to Zeppelin, Perry Farrell, the same thing, unique and odd and weird, is Vince Neil, too. And that's what I do love about Vince's voice. We couldn't do blues rock with Vince. It had to be the way that it is because of the way he sings. And I, I always feel grateful about that. But you get some fucking media knucklehead. They did. And I see like one of my favorite radio stations, they did a tweet and it was like, Oh really? And I was like, man, everybody like everybody's like, you know, snorting the fucking the bullshit dust. He is a unique vocalist that without his unique voice, we would not have been as a unique band any more than the way Tommy plays. You hear that damn cowbell man and that rhythm. And you got that, that pitch, that Vince voice of that monster guitar coming down and me doing the deep oh, yeah. thing. And you're like, okay, I'm, I'm in man. Let's go see these guys live. There's just so much negativity for Vince online these days. As I said, I love his voice on these records, but I am going to shit on him here too. For a little bit of Norway racism. And uh, which country do you like touring the best in? That's an easy one. Yeah. <laughs> Sweden. Sweden. <laughs> Sweden. Why do you like Sweden the best? Uh, we, I tell you what, when we just got to a Stockholm last year, we're walking down the street, and I think they ship ugly girls to, to Norway or someplace like that. If you're ugly, they you get you out of the country. You walk down the street and there's nothing but beautiful blondes. Barefooted. And, you oh, know, it's, like, and, the, oh, and it's all man. beaches and topless beaches and nude beaches and it's just like, you know, home. And I got a little bit sidetracked then, but the third single from Girls, Girls, Girls was another Motley Crue non-love power ballad, The Dark, You're All I Need, which made it to number 87 in the US and number 23 in the UK. Well, no, it's not a true story. We learned to lie. This is like really demented. At the time, 
I had been dating this girl. I found out she was cheating on me with this other guy. Well, this other guy happened to be this guy in a band, uh, not in a band, he's in General Hospital and he had a hit called You're All I Need. So I wrote the lyrics to You're All I Need, but based it on killing your girlfriend and gave it to my girlfriend. <laughs> to fuck with her head. And then everyone's like, wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> that's very motley. <laughs> so it ended, up, it ended up staying on the record, and then we ended up making the video for it. We based it on a Taxi Driver with uh, him sitting there burning the pictures of his girlfriend after he'd already killed her. and Yeah, and also more problems. I remember, oh, can't have the body bag. or That's right. Or, or you could just show it zipping up or it's just... It was more, a lot like, of drama. Always pushing it, you know, with more stuff and, you know, it's more things got cut out as you... And I remember hearing, how can you release a video without your band in it? We're like, well, the song's not about the band. It's yeah. a story. It's a story. It's based on this movie, based on a kind of a concept of had enough of this girl and you're gonna kill her. I remember Doc McGee telling me that John Bon Jovi said, Wow, they just wrote like the best pop song I've ever heard. And then Doc said to John, he says, Have you listened to the lyrics? And then he said, well, no, no, I just, you're all I need, right? And he says, no, 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 go, go back and listen, <laughs> listen to, to the verses, dude. <laughs> listen to the
Another great song off the record is called All In The Name Of, and it was apparently written about underage porn star Tracy Lords. And once again, it probably has a bunch of lyrics that wouldn't fly these days. Another great song off Girls, Girls, Girls is a song called Five Years Dead, which we heard a little bit earlier for mixed slide guitar intro. And Five Years Dead is the title of a 1937 Bernard Falk book that Nicky was reading. So during the Girls, Girls, Girls era, Nikki's drug intake was at its height, and 1987 included a few incidents of Nikki crawling naked in his backyard with a shotgun, shooting at voices in his house, and a few short rehab stays and an overdose. Mick Mars started to drink a lot more too to dull the pain of his degenerative bone disease, which I'm not even going to try and pronounce. 
1986, the Theater of Pain tour headed to Europe. On Valentine's Day, Motley Crue was booked to play a show in London's Hammersmith Odeon. On stage, Nicky felt like he was losing his battle with the demon. That first show, all I could think about was getting off stage and scoring drugs. I mean, the whole show. I was going through withdrawal, it's all I could think about. Desperate for a fix, Nikki found a grungy shooting gallery and a dealer who appeared to have clean needles. I let somebody shoot me up, and I did overdose. Nikki stopped breathing. The dealer beat him with a baseball bat to try to wake him up. It didn't work. They figured he was going to die. Panicked, the dealer dragged Nikki's comatose body out of the room. The dealer had to get rid of this body. So they were taking me to the trash bin. They all got scared, took him out and threw him in a dumpster. That was what Nikki's rock dreams had made of him. A junkie left for dead in the tracks. As Motley Crue, one of the world's biggest bands, was getting ready to play London's Hammersmith Odeon, their founder and bass guitarist, Nicky Six, was nowhere to be found. He was across town, lying in a trash dumpster, tossed in by a dealer who had given him up for dead after a heroin overdose. Remarkably, Nicky came too. Dragged in later that day and said that he had the flu or something, and nobody believed him. Even Nicky couldn't believe it. Even by his standards, he'd hit a new low. There's a difference in experimenting and partying and having fun in Animal House and debauchery and then just straight up addiction. So there's three key words from that story, Valentine's, London, trash. Dancing on Glass way back in episode four's Drugs. And I've always absolutely loved this song and it has a super dark Nikki Six lyric. And one thing that sets it apart from a lot of other Motley Crue songs is Vince's great two-part harmony in the verses. Yeah. 
run down a few of the songs that you're really pleased about, in particular the one that is going to be the first one that we'll hear. Uh, that'll be Girls, the Girls. title track. Wild Side's a great song. Um, Dancing on Glass. All together now. And, uh, yeah, we get good Man. <laughs> We, sp we spent uh, almost almost four and a half months recording it, which is a long time for us, and it sounds great. And we really just tweaked each little instrument out and got everything sounding it's good. Sound and sound it's big. Sound it sounds great. big, and we got we used um, gospel singers for background singers, which sounds really weird. Oh, is this a gospel uh, group? No, there's, there's three of them, you know, but they're, they're actual gospel singers and in, in a church, and it sounds phenomenal because it's real rich sounding. The background vocals mixed with ours, and there's some, like stuff. There's a song like Bad Boy boogie and with a kind of gospel thing going against the blues riffs it's pretty it's, wild it's great i mean <laughs> it's catchy and it's and it's interesting and it gives it its, its own sound So for the Girls, Girls, Girls tour, which started on the 19th of June 1987, the band travelled by private jet, and the tour was filled with heaps of rock and roll shenanigans such as stage vomits, Tommy having sex with Dave Coverdale from Whitesnake's girlfriend, and Dave may regret this promo. Molly Crew and Whitesnake, this is going to be... lock up everything that moves, wriggles, slithers, the craziest thing you've ever seen in your life. Nikki's bass tech, Tim Lutzi, going on stage every night in a priest robe, and Nikki poured Jack Daniels down his throat. Nikki and Tommy locking the doors of a limo, and when the driver got out to open the doors for them, they drove off and smashed the car. 
Nikki OD'd in a hotel in New York. Vince's clothes and wallet were stolen with $5,000 in it, and Vince smashed a glass jar of mustard and cuts up his hand. Aerosmith released Dude Looks Like a Lady after Steven Tyler saw Vince from a distance and got a boner. Nikki arrested outside a Motley Crue show in LA when he couldn't get in without his ID. Nikki setting a hotel room on fire. Slash and Nikki wrestling after a gig where Guns N' Roses opened for Motley and Slash dislocated four vertebrae in his back. Loads of drugs and booze. In Japan, Tommy is caught with weed. Vince having guns pointed at him by Japanese mafia in a restaurant. Nikki arrested in Tokyo. Once again, just because we could, you know, I wonder what the sound of Jack Daniels' bottle sounds like smashing against the bullet train window. You know, it's just, it was just, what's it gonna be like? And it goes to the front and smashes the window and comes crashing down on these nice little Japanese people. You know, they're just coming home from work. The alcohol goes everywhere, glass goes everywhere, ruining people's suits. The, 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 uh, the, the businessmen are, you know, ah, 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 everyone's freaking out. About an hour and a half goes by, we pull into Tokyo Station, and as I look out the window, I see hundreds of these guys in riot stuff, you know, running towards the train. So I go, hey, Nikki, your fan club's here. Right? They handcuff me. And all the fans there, I mean, it's like the Beatles, right? There's, you know, 5,000 kids there, and they're crying, you know, and it's like such a big deal, and Nikki's handcuffed and going to jail. And So I go, excuse, hold on, I'm the manager. They grab me, throw me to the ground, handcuff me, and then take me and Nikki, because I'm the manager and I'm responsible. Nikki gets handcuffed, and I'm so ripped that I'm going, yeah, I... I you're not going by yourself, buddy. I'm going with you. Watch this. And I start a bunch of shit. Now, as I'm laying there, Tommy Lee says to me, he goes, dude, I can't let you go by yourselves, you and Dickie. I'm going to clock one. I'll go with you. They take me to um, jail. They call Mr. Udo. Doc McGee's sitting there. And... I've got my sunglasses on and makeup's dripping out the bottom of the sunglasses and it's like you know, 12 o'clock at night. I've got my boots up on the captain's desk and he comes in and I go, uh, if my balls were on your chin, where would my be? <laughs> and he just looks at me like, are you insane? And I thought, oh, this is going to get bad, right? And because, you know, you're invincible. You're a rock band. You do anything you want. Those kind of stories would happen every single night. And Doc McGee's, like, looking at me like, I'm going to kill you. And I, he looks over at the, tra the other guy and says, D does he speak English? And he says, no. So I was like... Mick wearing a gorilla mask in the Tokyo streets and terrorised passers-by with his pants down, pissing on the street and trying to light his farts. Manager Doc McGee punching Vince in the face. A lawsuit. Victoria Homan says she suffered a severe hearing dysfunction and mental anguish as a result of going to a Motley Crue concert. The St. Petersburg, Florida woman is seeking $5,000 in damages from the band. She claims her injuries happened when she took her daughter to a December 1985 concert and they sat 10 feet from the stage. And all this reached boiling point on the 22nd of December 1987. One time in these overdoses yeah. that you had, you were declared dead. Yeah. 
Yeah. How did it feel to be dead? I, I can tell you things I saw What'd you say? That, that I shouldn't be able to have seen. Like I saw the hotel hallway, I saw the ambulance, I saw the limo that was there, but you know, I couldn't have really seen that because there was a sheet over me. And, you know, I really kept that to myself for a lot of years until I did the behind the music thing and I kind of let it slip because other people kind of look at you and think you're a little bit crazy. Well, no, a lot of people believe that you, there is something that happens when yeah. you are declared dead. But my feeling is you're not yeah. really dead. I don't think you, I mean, you're not really dead is what it is. Your mind is still operating. That's why you probably yeah. envisioned all these things. Yeah. In your head. And, and again, you know, I've, I've said, I don't know, may not have even ever seen that. I may have just thought that and it, it kind of came out through, you know, all that. But I would assume that um, this was a wake-up call for you, right? After Absolutely. You, all the drug overdoses and then yeah. you, you're dead. Yeah. Was that the end of your drug use? I mean, it, that was the beginning of the end. It takes a while and addiction is a really hard thing to, to kick. What were you um, on, heroin? I was on heroin, uh -huh. coke, pills, alcohol. All at alcohol. once? Yeah, all at once. My darkest moment was not the moment that a lot of people talk about in the Heroin Diaries, which was my near fatal mm -hmm. uh, overdose uh, or the one after that mm -hmm. where I woke up with the needle in my arm. It was about halfway through that year when I knew I couldn't get out. I got my information from drug dealers and prostitutes and strippers and the alternative underworld. So there wasn't like, hey, Nikki, here's a piece of paper. Here's a link. Right. There was no link. Here, go on your Twitter feed and follow, um, you know, National Recovery Month, you know, dot org, and uh, you can find phone numbers. If I had those phone numbers, I don't know if I would have gone as long into my addiction. And thus ends 1987 for Motley Crue. January 88, Tommy entered a rehab facility and a guy called Matthew Tripp sues the band for claiming he replaced the real Nikki Six in mid-1983 after Nikki, according to his story, was seriously injured in a car accident and he was claiming unpaid royalties. And the case was actually pending until 1993 when Tripp dropped the charges. Also in January 1988, the band's manager, Doc McGee, was busted for smuggling weed from Columbia. And it was like a lot of weed. <laughs> So the whole band tried to give up booze and drugs in the early parts of 1988 and hit the studio sober in 1989 to record their fifth album in eight action-packed years, Dr. Feelgood. The album, Dr. Feelgood for me, was the first Motley Crue album that I was waiting to be released as I found the band during the Girls, Girls, Girls era. And I went backwards from there, consuming Too Fast for Love, Shout at the Devil, Theatre of Pain, and Girls, Girls, Girls almost daily. Looking back at the Girls, Girls, Girls and Dr. Feelgood albums that they kind of got the titles around the wrong way, Bad Boy Boogie and the title track from Girls, Girls, Girls were trouser rock tunes, with the rest of the album having way darker, death, underworld, drug-related themes. But apart from the title track on Dr. Feelgood, most of the rest of that album is definitely trouser-driven. What happened around Girls, Girls, Girls is we were unified as a band. And we felt like we made such a bold move to 
to the right and leaving all the copycats to the left. Uh, and we felt the songs were so good, we felt the lyrics were so good, the production was so good, and it was such an honest record that when the record was the number two record when we sold the most records in the country, and it was through Paola that we lost the number one position. It unified the band even harder, and it bummed the band out to the point where we said, we will do anything to prove that we are the biggest band in the world. And that is how we got to Dr. Feelgood. Everybody cleaned up their act, and it was time to make some new music, and there was no way we were gonna do it at home. We needed to go away and wake up and eat, live, and breathe music, not, you know, well, I'll get to the studio, you know, like I gotta take my girlfriend to the hair salon and then I gotta take helicopter flying lessons and oh yeah, you know, shit, I'm not gonna make it today, guys. And like, we're like, we're going to Vancouver, we're moving, we brought our motorcycles, we brought all of our, you know, pinball machines, games, toys, and we just set up shop and we're like, we're gonna wake up and make music until we can't see straight, go to sleep, do the same thing over tomorrow for six months. You know, it worked. You know, it, it absolutely worked. And, you know, everybody was sober. Everybody had clarity. You know, we'd, we'd go to work every day and you know, whistle blow. <laughs> we'd, go, we'd go back, you know, back to our apartments and hotel rooms and things. And it was, it was a really a cool, creative time for, for Motley. We were a gang. We were a gang like we were on the first record. And it was, it wasn't about the money. We, we all had so much money we couldn't spend it. It wasn't about the girls because we all were in relationships so we weren't out chasing girls. It wasn't about the drugs because we'd quit doing the drugs and quit drinking. So it was only about the music. And it was perfect because it rained every single day. There was no, oh, it's nice out, let's go. No, no, we stayed in and we just worked. And we made a really, um, we made the best record of our career. It was just all about focus. It was raw, we were a gang. We spent, you know, eight, 12 hours in rehearsal. We, we hung out afterwards, we hung out before. It was a magical time. You know, we're rock fans, so we like it. You know, we figure everyone else is gonna like it. But it was just, they're just better quality songs. Um, the production's better on it. Uh, it was fun to have a lot of special guests come in. You know, Steven Tyler sang on it, and Jack Blades, and Brian Adams, uh, Robin Zander. You know, so it was, it was kind of neat. Kickstart My Heart lyrically, like, like a lot of our songs, just comes from experience. And I, I don't know where I came up with that, that title. Uh, but it came out. It just, I, I think I heard it somewhere in a movie or something, but I was playing guitar, I was in my kitchen on acoustic guitar, and I just started playing this thing, and I remember writing down on a napkin some of the lyrics, and my manager came over later that day, and he said, what's that? And I said, it's this song called Kickstart My Heart, and he goes, what's, what's it about? And I played it for him, and he goes, you, you have to, you have to show the band. And I said, I don't, I, don't really, I don't really know if it's quite right for us. And uh, he goes, you're, you're crazy. And I go, it's, it's more of kind of a punk song that would be similar to our first album. And we're doing these big riffs with Sticky Sweet and Dr. Feelgood. And he got me to show it to the band. Nikki had come to rehearsal with uh, a few chords. And so we started like working on it and, and 
you know, you know, adding parts and taking away parts, as we call it, like cutting the fat off the song. If it wasn't for Tommy's rhythms and back to Mick Mars, if it wasn't for the way Mick played guitar, it would just be a ratty punk rock song. It really took the three of us to make it into this big rock anthem and with Vince's unique vocals is, you know, one of our biggest hits we've ever had. One of my afterthoughts after the song was nearly done, I said, hey, what do you guys think about this? found a demo of Kickstart My Heart, and it's another song that Vince would be glad that they dropped from A down a tone to G. So the album Dr. Feelgood was released on the 1st of September 1989 and went to number one in the US, number four in the UK, number five in Australia, number five in New Zealand, and number seven in Norway. See? I don't think I'll ever forget having, I, still, I have it framed actually, we had a number one record in the country um, uh, on my birthday. I'll never forget that. Uh, there, I remember the label calling, going, hey man, happy fucking birthday. You have a number one record in the, in the country. And I was like, what? Didn't know, totally unexpected. I knew we did well, and I knew it would do well, but not that. The album Dr. Feelgood went on to sell over six million copies worldwide, and the album had five singles. The title track, which went to number 50 in the UK, number six in the US, number 26 in Australia, number 11 in New Zealand, Kickstart My Heart, number 27 in the US, number 34 in Australia, number 31 in New Zealand, Without You, UK 39, US 8, Australia 46, Don't Go Away Mad, Just Go Away, went to number 19 in the US, number 72 in Australia, and number 49 in New Zealand. 
And I think I played this scene from the movie Heartbreak Ridge way back in episode 20's brackets, so block your ears. It's going to go hard on y'all if y'all don't cooperate. We ain't got nothing to say to you, Webster. Why don't you take your ass back to that faggot first platoon of yours and uh, don't go away, man. Just, uh, just go away. If Mick needs a fill, I put a fill. Like on Don't Go Away Mad. single was Same Old Situation, which went to number 78 in the US. And Dr. Feelgood was definitely another great Mick Mars record. I try to innovate or show people that a guitar is more than just a six-string thing that you play. It's a real instrument. Look what you can do with this. I remember, I remember seeing Eric Clapton and B.B. King playing together. And so Eric Clapton gets up there and he goes, you know, his fast rip. And B.B. King looks up at him and he goes, bang. And the crowd just went, oh, then went nuts. And that's what I'm talking about. It's just like those simple little things like that that make a song a song. If if you can go out of the arena and um, hum the solo or sing the solo, remember the solo, then you've done your job right, to me. I mean, that's the way I think about songs. And just some nerd housekeeping on the song Slice of Your Pie. The outro is definitely a tip of the hat to the Beatles, I Want You, She's So Heavy.
So the band headed off on a huge world tour in support of the album. The tour consisted of 166 shows in 11 countries, including Norway. Dritkult. And also Australia, where I caught them for the first time. And also a one-off gig in Russia. Riding high after the successful and sober Dr. Feelgood recording session, the band headed to the Moscow Music Peace Festival. The concert, held in August of 1989, was organized by Doc McGee to raise funds for an anti-drug charity he started after being convicted of marijuana smuggling. Moscow's pretty bitchin'. It's kind of like L.A., just a little bit different. But the band was upset when they perceived that manager Doc McGee favored another client, Bon Jovi, during the festival getting the other band permission to use pyrotechnics and a time slot that apparently upstaged Motley Crue. Turned out to be a disaster for all concerned. They ended their six-year relationship with him. Co-manager Doug Thaler, though, continued to represent Motley Crue. I had pretty much had enough, and, and they had. And Moscow was the, last, was the last show. I think it was over, just ego. I, don't, I look back on it now and I said I would never put up with that ever again. By early 1990, band members were, one by one, leaving sobriety behind. Slowly, just like, oh, I think I can have a beer. You know, it just, it's kind of the slide, you know, back into it. The last night of the tour, of course, we're in Hawaii. What a better place to f just fire it up, right? So me and Vince are in a strip club. Here comes the girl with the crazy test tube those stupid shots and we're like I look at him he looks at me and we're like you have a band that's that extreme it's not going to be all of a sudden you turn the page and it's happily ever after it's just interesting to note too that the last song on Dr. Feelgood is called Time for Change and who would have thought by February 1992 Vince would be out of the band in this band there's, there's four individual characters it's um and, and if one left or, or one was replaced, it would never be the same. And there's just a lot of bands out there that have a new band member every week. Yeah. And I mean, how about it, guys, huh? <laughs> I mean, there's, and there's a new band member every week in the band. After a while, you go, well, who's in the band? Is, you know? And it's so, not, it's, I mean, it's the, it's the four of us that makes the magic, not any, you know. So if one person left, it wouldn't be magic I anymore. I mean, you split up the band, though. You just, it, it, you'd be a trio. Yeah. You know. I think that's good too. Kids go, uh, they, they feel that, you know, they can it's look so forward to seeing us around for a long time. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> And that ends my dig on the first decade of Motley Crue. How the fuck was that? With all the drugs, touring and chaos, I have no idea where Nicky had the time to write some of the 80s most interesting lyrics that still hold up for me after 30 years. I'd love one day to chat to Nicky and switch off all the sex and drug questions and just ask a bunch of questions about the songwriting process during the crazy years and some questions about the songs themselves. So if you're listening, Nicky, you can hit me up on Facebook or Instagram, A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole Podcast. You can check out all the previous episodes of the podcast on the website, arockandrollrabbithole.com. Please tell a friend about the podcast if you're digging it, rate, review, and all that shit. And I am going to try and put out a midweek bonus Motley Crue episode inspired by Chris Dash in San Fran. If you're listening, Chris, and if you're not listening, you can definitely go and fuck yourself. And as always, any copyright breached here is purely intentional in the hope that someone will check out some of this great music. And as always, I appreciate everyone listening and saying hey on social media, and hopefully I can squeeze out a bonus episode. If not, I hope you let me come in your ears next week with a normal episode. Thanks again, guys. See ya. Motley fucking crew! Yeah! Get out!
Get out of my podcast, you little shit. <laughs>